Let's take a look at John chapter 1, verses 35 through 42. When I first became a pastor, it was in the little church I grew up in, and there were several older men, older pastors who took an interest in me, took me under their wing, uh, took me to lunch, prayed for me, shared advice, and that was a real blessing to me. One of them was a guy who, I'll just call him Ronald, not his real name, but he, uh, I'd heard his name all my life because he was from the same little rural community where I was from, and he was distantly related to me, but I didn't really know him until I was an adult, and we pastored together in that same local association. And while we were talking, he told me a story about my grandfather that I'd never heard. Now, my grandpa on my mom's side, I was blessed with all four grandparents till I was 30 years old. That's a real blessing. My grandpa on my mom's side had a a deep impact on me spiritually, uh, but I'd never heard this story. So Ronald grew up in that community, raised a Christian, probably considered himself a Christian, but as a young man, he wasn't going to church, had no interest in the things of God. And one day, my grandfather came to his house and invited him to church. Now, he respected my grandpa, didn't want my grandpa to think less of him, uh, but he didn't have any interest in going to church, so he made up what he thought would be an ironclad excuse. He said, I, you know, I'd love to come, but I don't have any clothes that are suitable. These, this pair of overalls I'm wearing, that's all I've got. Now, my grandfather, although a very blue-collar man of the soil, a dairy farmer, he, was, he had these very strong convictions about, you need to dress up to go to church. You need, he, every time the church doors opened, he was there in a suit, coat and tie every time. And so Ronald figured that my grandpa would say, well, you know, once you're able to buy some more suitable clothes, then we'll see you. But instead, my grandpa didn't bat an eye. He said, come in your overalls. We just want you there. And that, that hit his heart because it said, my soul is more important than my appearance. My soul is more important to this man than his own preferences and his own opinions and his own convictions. And he ended up being saved and of course went on to be a pastor. Now, my grandfather was far from perfect. He, I, I saw him many times lose his temper when he was working with cows or horses or, or dogs, I mean, you know, bulky tractor, a truck that wouldn't start. He had lots of, you know, almost cuss words that he would drop. You know, John Brown, it was a favorite. Uh, when, when people would slide him, he could hang on to that hurt for quite a while. And, and like most people who live in a very rural area, never really get out. He, he was in the Navy during World War II, but otherwise never lived anywhere else, never desired to live anywhere else. And so he could be a little narrow-minded, but a student of the Word of God, served God with all his heart, For many, many years, he was basically the youth minister, although he didn't have that title in that community. And all the the adults that I knew who were my parents' age that grew up there would talk to me about, yeah, when we were growing up, your grandpa would have volleyball games every Sunday night and he'd have Bible study and he'd have lots of Dr. Pepper because grandpa thought that was God's nectar himself. Um, and, And so, you know, who knows how many souls that he touched through that. And then by the time I came along, grandpa had graduated to become the men's Sunday school teacher at the church. That's how small the church was. It was just one men's Sunday school class. He taught it. Um, Along with Ronald and me, there was my uncle Tim, his son, who is also a pastor. So that's at least three pastors who he directly influenced and and had an impact on. And I saw him be generous over and over again to different people, hand money to folks who needed help. So only heaven itself knows how many people he touched. Now, here's the thing. By the time I was an adult, I learned that grandpa grew up in a home with a dad that didn't go to church at all. Statistically speaking, if your dad doesn't go to church, you as an adult 
are more likely than not gonna, not gonna follow God. There are exceptions, grandpa was one of them. And so it made me think, who was it, who was it who when grandpa was a teenager or a little boy or a young adult who came to him and had the conversation with him that he had with Ronald all those years later? And sad to say, I never learned because by the time I thought to ask that question, it was too late. But someday in heaven, I'm gonna meet that person. Whoever it was, his mom, a relative, a pastor, a friend, a teacher, another concerned adult, I'm gonna meet that person in heaven and I'm gonna hear them tell the story and I'm gonna say thank you because you changed the trajectory of my family and you touched thousands of lives because think about it, one conversation with one young man has ripple effects that are still around. Grandpa died in 2010. Whoever ministered to him, witnessed to him, probably died long before that, and yet the ripple effects of that conversation still go on to this day. That's the power. That's the power of one conversation. Even one sentence can change lives for thousands and thousands of people for decades to come. And you, you may not think that you're capable of that sort of thing. You may think, well, I'm just an ordinary Christian. I don't, I don't have any power in myself. I'm not eloquent. I'm not outgoing. I'm not educated. That's okay. You have the power because the Holy Spirit is in you, the same Holy Spirit that's in John the Baptist, the same Holy Spirit that was in my grandfather. You have the power to speak words of life, words that bring life. And in fact, not only do you have that power, you have that responsibility. That's what we're called to do. So here's a story of that kind of conversation. In fact, that kind of sentence, verse 35 of John 1. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, Why, what are you seeking? And they said to him, rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You will be called Cephas, which means Peter. So just to recap, John speaks one sentence, behold the Lamb of God. And that causes Andrew to investigate Jesus. He becomes a believer. Then he goes to Peter, Simon, his brother. By the way, side note, whenever you see the name of Andrew in the Bible, this is one of those unsung heroes in scripture. Andrew, every time you see him in the Bible, he's always bringing somebody to Jesus. In this case, he brought his brother, Simon. Now, what, what about Simon? What happened with him? Well, let's, let's see. All he did was preach the first Christian sermon and thousands of people got saved, started the first Christian church, brought the first Gentiles, non-Jews like us, into the Jesus movement, personally led thousands of people to Christ, wrote two books of the New Testament and died a martyr's death, if you believe church tradition, all because John said, behold the Lamb of God. Those are powerful words, aren't they? That's one powerful sentence. And yet I want you to know, it's not the one sentence that saved. There's something behind it. There's a power behind it. There's a lot of work that went into that one sentence. And that's what I wanna to talk to you about today. See, you may not think you're capable of speaking words that will change somebody's life, but if you do what John did, if you invest the kind of time that it takes, then you can see your words change lives for thousands of people for decades to come, long after you leave this world. 
Lives will be changed because of something you said. What, what brought these words power? Number one, he spoke the gospel truth. See, John's words weren't just words. They were the truth of the gospel. He said, behold, the lamb of God. Now that would have been a familiar term to Andrew and to the other disciples standing there and anybody else who heard, but it was not a term they'd ever heard ascribed to a living person. See, they were, they were Jews who believed in the coming Messiah. The Messiah was gonna be the son of God, the son of man, the branch, the righteous one. They had all kinds of titles for him, but they never called him the lamb of God. They would have thought of certain things. When they heard those words, lamb of God, they would have thought of Abraham sacrificing Isaac on Mount Moriah, tying his little boy up and, the, and, and little Isaac looking up at his father and saying, father, where's the lamb for the offering? And and Abraham's saying, well, God will provide a lamb. And sure enough, there's a ram standing there caught with its horns in a thicket. Now, I know this is a complicated story and I don't have time to get in all the details. Someday I will. But the point of that story is the lamb died so that the boy didn't have to. And then they would have thought about the Passover. Every year they celebrated the Passover, going back to when they were little kids. Remembering that day, hundreds of years before when their forefathers in Egypt slaughtered lambs and, and painted their blood across the doorposts of their homes. And because of that blood, the death angel passed over their houses and they were freed. And so again, the lambs died so they could go free. And then they would have thought number three of Isaiah 53. We talked about Isaiah 53 yesterday, last week, uh, the suffering servant song how God sends his servant to suffer in our place. And Isaiah 53, seven specifically mentions a lamb. It says, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So again, again, they would have understood this is a biblical concept, but they never would have thought that that lamb that dies for others would be a person who stands there in front of them. John was speaking good news to them. You hear that term gospel truth sometimes. It's, it's become kind of a cliche. It's, it's sort of a way of saying, no, this is really, really true. He's not just telling the truth. He's telling the gospel truth, but that's not the actual meaning of the term. The word gospel in Greek is euangelion. It's the word we get evangelism or evangelist or evangelical from. It means good news. What is the good news that John spoke? He's saying all those lambs that you've read about, that you've heard about in the Bible, they're embodied in this man right here. He will be the one who will die so you can go free. Now that's good news. God has sent us a lamb to die in our place. Now here's the thing. I've known a lot of people and everybody I've ever met is an expert in something. If I sat down with you and I started asking you questions, I guarantee you I would uncover some topic that you could tell me all about in great detail. When I was a teenager, I could have told you the starting lineup of every Major League Baseball team. I could have told you every, every starting quarterback of every NFL team. I could have told you statistics. I, could have, I had, I had an encyclopedic knowledge of that kind of stuff. You probably have encyclopedic knowledge of something. There's something that you can, you can talk knowledgeably and passionately and, and confidently about. But everybody who claims to be a Christian ought to be an expert in Jesus. That ought to be the one topic that we all know about, that we all can speak about biblically, humbly, boldly, confidently, passionately. If you, if you can't answer questions about 
Jesus Christ. If you, can't, if you can't respond to things people say and say, well, actually, here's what the Bible says. If you can't tell people about him, then make it your mission to change that. We all ought to be able to tell people the good news. We all ought to be confident in our ability to share the gospel truth. Number two, he had credibility with those who heard him. See, Andrew and the other disciple, they weren't just random strangers walking down the street and heard John speak and said, oh, I guess I'll follow this guy. No, they were his disciples. Now that's a word, disciple, that we use differently today than they used in scriptural times and in the ancient world. You never hear somebody today say, hey, by the way, everybody, this is Bill. He's my disciple. If you did, Bill would be like, I'm your what? Because we think of disciple in very religious terms. A disciple is someone who worships the person they're following because that's what the 12 apostles eventually did for Jesus. But before Jesus came along, the word disciple simply meant learner. In fact, that's what the word means in Greek. It just means learner. So if you were a disciple of someone else, what it meant was you decided this guy knows the truth. This guy's got life figured out. I'm gonna devote myself to following him and being around him as much as possible and patterning my life after his ways because if I do, I'll live the right kind of life. So John had these men who just spent time with him and drank in everything he had to say. In other words, when he said, behold the Lamb of God, they already knew John. They respected him, they trusted him. So when he said, this is the guy, they said, okay, he must be the guy. See, I'd say all this because I've grown up in an evangelical subculture, and many of you have too, where you hear these stories often by, by famous evangelists, by famous preachers, by Christian authors, and they always go some, something similar to this. I was in a grocery store, I was on an airplane, I was at a ball game, I was in an elevator, and I met this person who wasn't a believer in Jesus. Maybe they were a Muslim, maybe they were an atheist, maybe they just unchurched. And, and, and in a matter of five minutes, 30 minutes, an hour, they prayed a prayer and accepted Christ as their savior. And I don't know about you, but ordinary folks like me read stories like that and we go, okay, wow. I mean, that guy's bold. I could never do that. In fact, in fact, stories like that, I know those, those people tell those stories in order to praise the Lord and, and we should, but they have the unintended effect of making the rest of us go, well, I guess since he's such an evangelistic Superman, I'll just, I'll just support his ministry and let him do the work. When the truth is we're all supposed to take the word of God. We're all supposed to speak those words of life. And I've got good news for you. While yes, sometimes random strangers lead random strangers to salvation. It does happen. We see it happen in the New Testament. In fact, in Acts chapter eight, when, when, when Philip leads the Ethiopian official on the road to Gaza to salvation and baptizes him. Yes, that does happen even to this day. And some of y'all do that. You've told me stories. But in my experience, that's not how most people's lives get changed. And I would, I would speculate, even the ones who seem to be total random events, there was somebody who was investing in that person for days, months, weeks, years leading up to that. You're just the person who came along and scored the basket, right? Finished it off. No, most people's lives are changed through a long-term relationship where you earn credibility with them, where they see that you are genuine, that you practice what you preach. And eventually you get a chance to speak words of life into their lives. 
And that's why here at First Baptist, our mission is not that by the year 2030, we're gonna have 10,000 conversations about Jesus, or by 2030, we're gonna knock on 10,000 doors, or we're gonna put up 10,000 billboards with scripture on them. All of those are good, don't get me wrong. But we believe that 10,000 transforming relationships by the year 2030 will have a greater impact on this community than any of those other things. In fact, that's the way God will change our community through us. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to take some action right now. There are cards in the pew in front of you. There are transforming relationship cards. Everybody take one. If there's too many for the people on your row, turn around and steal from the row behind you. But everybody get a card, write your name on it. You can write while I'm talking. It's okay, I'm not offended. Write your name on it. And then write the name, first name, initial. You can make up a name if you want to, but somebody who you're investing in. And what I mean by that is, this is a person who at least once a week, I pray for their salvation. Or this is a person who I know and they're headed down the wrong road and I'm trying my best to steer them in the right direction. Or this is a person who's an unbeliever and I'm trying to live such a life in front of them that it'll have an impact on their lives and influence them in the right way and maybe someday I can share the gospel with them. Or even this person's a Christian, they're not even lost, but, but they just went through a terrible tragedy and I'm trying to comfort them or I'm trying to help them or I'm trying to mentor them or I'm trying to, I'm trying to be a blessing to them. If there's somebody in your life that you're investing in, somebody outside your immediate family, I want you to write their name or their initials on that card. And as soon as the service is over, in just a few minutes, go out that door, turn right. You'll see underneath the big TV screen, there's a black basket full of cards. Just put it in there. If you don't have time to do that, just leave it in your pew and we'll pick it up. And by the way, if you can't think of anybody's name to write on that card, here's what I want you to do. Please do this. Take it home, put it on your bathroom mirror, your refrigerator, somewhere where you'll see it every day and pray that God would show you, who do you want me to reach out to? Who do you want me to love? To, to try to reach, to be a blessing to in your name. And once you know, write it down and let us know and the whole reason for this. You understand that the purpose of the church is not to have worship services, don't you? I mean, worship is important. Football team doesn't win unless they practice. An army doesn't win a battle unless they drill. But just going to church and thinking we did it is like a football team finishing practice and never playing a game. It's like an army drilling and never fighting. We do this so we can do that. We worship on Sundays so we can make a difference in the lives of others Sunday through Sunday through Sunday through Sunday. Will you let us know how we're doing? Will you let us know if you're investing in somebody else? Establish credibility in somebody's life. God will open a door for you to speak words of life into their life someday. Number three, he didn't have a self-serving agenda See, if you were Andrew standing there next to John the Baptist and you heard him say, hey, you've been following me all this time, this is the guy you should be following. This is the Lamb of God. You would have known immediately that John had nothing to gain by saying that. In fact, it would have surprised you. You would have thought, well, John, why are you sending me away to follow somebody else? Isn't that gonna hurt your pride? Isn't that gonna make your following one person less? In fact, might it even influence some other people to jump ship from you and start following this other guy? Yeah, John had no self-serving agenda in sending others to follow Jesus, and that mattered. Because people like Andrew could say, 
obviously you're telling me this because you love me. Obviously, you don't gain anything from this except knowing that I've found the truth. Because the truth is, and this is something that we religious people get wrong over and over and over again. People out there can sniff out hypocrisy. They can sniff out self-serving agendas, self-righteousness. I, I hate to tell you this, and I don't want anybody to, to go on the internet and look this up, but if you did, if you, if you typed into your search box, if you typed in deconstruction stories or deconversion stories, let me tell you, there is a long, 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 long list of stories that people have written, sort of reverse testimonies. I grew up in church. I was baptized. I was an altar boy. I was, I was a Sunday school teacher. I was on a mission trip. I, I did all that stuff, but now I'm not a believer anymore. And here's why. And many of the stories, most of the stories, you can trace it back to mistakes made by the people of God. And it goes something like this. It's, I, I, I grew up in church, but when I got to the age where I started asking questions, why does the Bible say this? And why does God act this way? And why, why does science seem to disagree with scripture? And what, what, why, is, why are there parts of scripture that don't seem, don't seem to make sense to me? And I was just told, oh, just shut up and believe what we tell you. And that was the beginning of the end of my faith. Or, or I was raised in church and, and then I was abused by someone in the church. And when I went to tell the, the leaders of the church, they told me, okay, we're really sorry about what happened to you, but keep it quiet because we don't want to hurt the church's name in the community. Don't call the police, don't report it. Um, you know, there's a lot of people's souls on the line and you don't want to damage the reputation of, of God's church. Or I grew up in church and I was told all my life that the people out there on the outside of the church, that they, they're evil and you need to stay away from them. We have the truth. We're the ones who love you. They don't love you out there. And then I grew up and made friends with people who were of other faiths and people of no faith at all and found that they were good people too. And so if I was lied to about that, then what else was I lied to about? There's a long, long list. And what it tells you is, like I said, trying to control people trying to control people through guilt and fear and misinformation, it doesn't work. It may seem to work for a while, but it always backfires. I just got finished reading the latest book by my favorite Christian author, Philip Yancey. It's his memoir. He actually wrote his life story. He talks about being born in a Baptist church in Georgia uh, back in the 50s and, and growing up in the 50s and 60s. And uh, his mom when he was a little boy, took him to the cemetery where his father was born. See, Philip Yancey's dad died when Philip was just an infant. The, this young man had pledged to be a missionary to Africa and had died, contracted polio and died. So the mom took Philip and, and his older brother Marshall to the cemetery and there pledged them both to the Lord and promised God that they would follow and become the missionaries to Africa that their, their father never could be. And that promise made by their mom hung like a curse over these two boys, like a, like a yoke around their necks. And all their lives, they, they, they lived through this dissonance. Of, they had this mother who was seen by everybody as this saintly woman because she was raising these two boys on her own. And she taught Bible classes all during the week and did apartment ministry. But at home, she was a taskmaster. And the slightest variation from her express will was met with anger. There was no praise. There was no encouragement. It was all control. It was all anger. To this day, Philip's mom, she's in her 90s, has still never read any of his books because she's so angry that he never followed her promise to become a missionary. His older brother, Marshall, has become 
an unbeliever, an atheist. Went off to a Bible college that her mother, their mother had chose for them where they were given arbitrary rules to follow. Bell went off at 6 a.m. You had to read your Bible then. If someone caught you sleeping in, then you were in trouble. You couldn't have long hair or, or a beard because uh, that, was, that was evil. I mean, it was the 60s, right? We don't want to be hippies. And yet you'd walk through the campus and you'd see pictures of Jesus with a beard and long hair. And there was some dissonance there. Uh, all these rules to try to control, but no love, no good news. Yes, the Bible was preached. The good news was preached, but there was no love with it. It was all about control. It was all about we're right and everyone else is wrong. Philip Yancey himself didn't become a believer until he was a sophomore in college. He grew up fearing, feeling guilty. He grew up knowing how to say the right words. He could get up and give a testimony and make people weep, but he wasn't really a believer. Until the day he met a young woman, the daughter of a missionary, and he found in her unconditional love. Eventually they married They've been married for 50 years, but she's the reason he got saved. Before they dated, before they became a couple, he saw in her this unconditional love, this gentleness, this truth. And he thought to himself, why does this exist if there's not a God? Why is there such a thing as love? After all, it doesn't, it doesn't perpetuate the species. Sexual attraction does, but not love. Why is there love? Why is there beauty? Why does a, a, an orchestra sound beautiful? Why, why does a, a sunrise stir awe in me? None of that perpetuates the, the survival of a species. This, there has to be a God. And he became a believer in Jesus and has touched many lives. Love is powerful. People know when you don't have a self-serving agenda, when they're putting you ahead of them. And that's powerful. You see, when people see real love in you and in me, it gives our words authority because they see something in us that they've never seen before. They see the one who created them in his image. They see the one who came down here to die in their place. They see Jesus whose every decision he ever made was for their good at his expense. They see what they've always been looking for even if they never knew it. 